This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 51, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're talking quality deer management and hunting the south with Lindsay Thomas of Quality Deer Management Association. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and as always, I am joined by my good buddy from the Midwest, rocking the mullet, maybe not lately, but in a recent in, in in his recent past, John Utah Mulligan. What's going on, my man? What's up? Coming yeah. from you, uh coming to, coming to you from Iowa, um former former mullet. Now it's just uh, long and shaggy. Now it's long and shaggy. The, the the parking lot pirate these days. Oh man, I tell you what, it's um, man, you know, I I changed cell phones. I had uh, U.S. Sailor, and U.S. Sailor is kind of the big cell phone around these parts. But whenever you leave Iowa, then you don't have a cell phone. Um, so I went back to, uh, went back to Verizon. And it works pretty good at the house, but it works great anytime I leave the house. So that was a decision. But once I did it, then um, we ported all the numbers over. And I guess U.S. Sailor was like, oh, I guess they're done. So they shut off my home phone, too. So we had to call them back and try to get that reinstated. So, um, But I think now I'm actually going to just switch even the home phone over to Verizon. So anyways... I don't have a home phone right now, just cell phones. Right, nice. Yeah, the parking lot pirate. It could be misconstrued as the uh, the the ladies who are parking lot pirates at the truck stops. So you're not doing that, yes. just so people are clear. I'm not a lot lizard. No, I assure you. 
Nice. So before we jump into things, let's take a quick second to uh, thank our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. We are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest lasting, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. You may not be as tough as the parking lot pirate, Johnny Utah Law, but you sure can get a tough hands on right now if you... Visit wickedtreegear.com and you use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. You can get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase along with free shipping. We are also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear, Life's a Passion. Pursue it. They've got the new Trek camera out that should be on their site now for purchase. They, of course, have the Lift 2 camera, which is badass and has been out for a while. So do yourself a favor. Go ahead and get stocked up this uh, late winter, early spring to get ready for uh, so you're all prepared for Velvet Fest. You can visit them at ExodusOutdoorGear.com and pre-order or just order uh, either of their cameras. Uh, and you can use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20 bucks. And of course, this time of year is a great time to do some frost seeding. And if you're doing that, you should head over to Tecamani. Uh, com and check out their seed selection. They uh, are well known in the South, specifically Texas, but if you can grow stuff in, in, in sand, you can grow stuff anywhere. So no matter if you're in the South, Midwest, or Northeast, you'll want to check them out at techamani.com and use their product selector tool to help have them help you pick the right seed for your food plots. You can use the promo code TRUTH at checkout there as well and save yourself 20%. And then, John, I know you were doing some shed hunting today. I'm imagining you probably had a glacier cooler with you with some with some cold pops in them. And uh, whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter designs, stronger construction, and superior insulation of glacier coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. And like the rest, use the promo code TRUTH and save yourself 20% cash on a purchase. So, man, you were uh, you're with a sh- uh, Sugar Shane out uh, doing a little uh, shed hunting today, yes? Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's sitting uh, beside me right now. He uh, he came down from Wisconsin, and uh, it's the first uh, day that I can actually say was a dedicated shed hunting day to get out and look for some bone. Um, so it was nice to get out. I think we did like seven and a half miles uh, through the mud and the muck. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Nice. Any any good finds? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. We found a one match set um of a nice uh five by five um nice. i don't know three-year-old maybe probably three-year-old um and definitely a buck that uh i would love to uh bump into again maybe this fall or, or next fall but uh we found a tiny tiny little uh four point side off of a one-year-old but mm-hmm. i mean we're talking like the most overly developed one-year-old ever um <laughs> and then nice. found another uh four four point side uh, as well and this one was extremely fresh still had the wax ring nice. um but man the squirrels had gotten a hold of this joker like already really a lot so really yeah so nonetheless we picked up four sheds today um it's still a little early out here i mean i'd say probably 50 percent of our bucks are still holding their headgear nice. um but uh, you know a day walking around looking for deer sign looking at trails and and if you get to bend over and pick up one shed that's a uh, that's a win. Yeah, man, for sure. It's, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting out. I'm not going to do any getting out this weekend. I'm in, I guess since, since hunting season's over, man, I've been in full swing, like honey do list mode. So this weekend, uh, I won't be shed hunting. I will be installing lights and uh, new outlets. So get excited for that. Um, and then I have the super exciting thing to do next week. Um, while I'll be traveling for some, some work and then I'll be heading to Nashville, Tennessee on Friday next week for, a wedding so which uh i don't know you want to take my place man you take my place go to the wedding 
get sauced up, make a scene maybe, and I'll do some shit hunting <laughs> in your play in your stead. <laughs> Man, I tell you, the the best part about that is Nashville. But consider this: it could be a wedding during November. So, yeah, you know, I so thought it, it could that. be worse. I, I thought of that. I was like, you know, it is during, not during hunting season. So at least that's good. I tried to explain to my wife. I was like, look, it's it, like, he's, they're going to get divorced. It's one in every, you know, 50% of people end up in divorces. Like I'll just catch him on the second one. It'll be cool. That'll be the one that lasts anyway. But that, that didn't, that uh, logic didn't go over so well. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I've thought about doing something on the gift registry, like enclose a note that says if divorce within first year, gift is uh gets returned back to the gifter you know <laughs> right or or please pay back in full you know whatever the cost of the gift just yeah. include the receipt <laughs> Dude, that would be awesome so what else has been going on man you uh so what's going on with the i know you had and so arrow wild is on carbon tv i know that we announced that i know you have the first it's correct me if i'm wrong the first episode is up and you're in there's more episodes soon to come right yeah, yeah. So um, the first season uh, we did just on Facebook, and um, what we did over the winter was compile those episodes, and uh, basically episode one and two became episode one, uh, three and four became two. Uh, so we doubled them up and went ahead and, and kicked those over to Carbon TV as season one, and then just about two weeks ago, uh, we launched our first exclusive uh, episode, so it would be season two, episode one, uh, went on to Carbon TV, and uh, so far, man, it's been uh, well-received, and, and people seem to like it. I've been getting uh, a lot of really cool messages, and if anybody's listening and wants to, they like it, and they want to take the time to send a message, it never gets old, you know, hearing from people saying, hey, I really like the way you guys did this, or um, but the common theme of the messages that we've been getting has been, Hey, you guys are real dudes. Uh, you're hunting, uh, borrowed, um, pri- uh, private, uh, you know, door knock opportunity land or public land. And, and we really dig that. And, um, you guys tell it like it is, and you can tell that you guys are, you know, humble guys that, um, you don't always, you don't always have success, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been super cool. Yeah, man. It's a, it, the cool thing is too, man, is like, I've got, you know, I was fortunate enough to, I got to meet a couple of your guys, you know, Sugar Shane. I love that name, man. Sugar Shane. I just wish his last name was Mosley. That way we could, Sugar Shane Mosley just has like a ring to it. <laughs> could we rename his last name Mosley? <laughs> yeah, really? Sugar Shane. But uh, hilarious. He, he, he and Tyler and it's, you're right, man. It's like. Just some down home dudes, man. Guys that you want to have a have a have a drink with or have a beer with and just talk deer hunting, um, and it comes through in the video, which is awesome. And they're just good dudes in in, in person too, so that always makes it always makes it kind of nice. I know you and I were talking a little bit the other night. I might I might make a little film. Not gonna kind of give out any any details, but I'm excited to possibly try my hand at a, a very novice version of of making a film. And I'm looking forward to picking your brain on on how to make that happen. So. Sure. You know, and it's fun too, cause you know, I like, I love doing the web shows and I love, um, sharing the stories, but the, the bigger part of that is I like sharing the stories with my buddies Yeah, and, and seeing their hunts. Um, you know, the team is extremely diversified between Iowa, Kentucky and Wisconsin. 
Uh, some guys have bigger pieces of ground. Some have smaller pieces of ground. Um, but we're all diehard bow hunters. So that's kind of that common theme. So that's the, that's what draws me into the web show and kind of keeps me wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, me personally, you know, my real passion is in, you know, the photography side of things and my, my short films that I get to do. Right. Um, the only, the only bad side is, you know, you get yourself in the mindset of what kind of footage you want to have for a web show. And then the footage and the storytelling of a short film is totally different. So you kind of got to wear two different hats. And, and, and I've had to struggle with that a little bit where I kind of go back and forth and it would probably be easier to just focus on one or the other, but man, I'm having fun doing both of them. So I don't want to give up either one, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'll definitely be picking your brains. I've already kind of started thinking of that as I kind of think about, you know, the the thing that I want to put together that, you know, I discussed the other night and started kind of thinking about how I would map that out. And I'm, I think I just need to sit down and kind of like write it out, like what I think the flow should be. And then I probably needed to run it by you and say, tell me where I made a bunch of really poor decisions <laughs> for, the, yeah, for the most yeah. part. Well, no, and that's just it. I mean, the one cool thing is like, if you're the one telling the story and it's coming from you, then it's, it's going to be legit and honest. And, you know, as you know, mm-hmm. um, but I can tell you, I've had many ideas that I've tried to do and I'm like, eh, yeah, that didn't work. Now, either A, I just wasn't good enough to make the story work or the footage or the storyline wasn't good enough to follow along. But um, I think the the good fallback on those short films is as long as you're, you know, I'll sound kind of cheesy here. As long as you're speaking from the heart, uh, you you can't go wrong, you know, and I, and people, people see that and... Um, and it'll convey to the audience. Right. I think that was like a, a lyric from like a, an 80 soft rock ballad from like fast times at Ridgemont high. <laughs> true. If you're, yeah, if you're, as long as you're true to the heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't go wrong. Speaking, speaking of heart, we were pulling onto one of the properties that we were going to shed hunt today and heart came on the radio Dude. and it kind of got Shane and I a little pumped up for the, for the walk, I'm not gonna lie, dude. Heart is badass. I don't know how many people out there appreciate how hard Heart rocks. Like those are some Heart was. Those are some, yeah, those are some rocking rockers, chicks, man. dude. Yeah, I mean they throw down. And then recently, in recent history, they've done a bunch of shows with like Alice in Chains and stuff. And that's actually a little known fact. I don't know how many people out there are listening are Alice in Chains fans, but Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains was hugely influenced by Heart and has a lot of respect for Heart. Which is why you see them share stages often together in their later in their career. Not sure if you knew that. Very, very cool. Yeah. No, I did not know that. That is a fun fact. Yeah. So those of you out leave there, it to the, go leave ahead. it to the washed up musician to come up with all the fun facts on music. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Well, you try to say I'm a washed up musician. It's like this guy knew that. Washed up musician. <laughs> oh, I know, dude. It's like I have so much One use- of my buddies, useless uh, music knowledge Dan, in my head. Hold- it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, buddy of mine, Dan, he used to always say I was an old washed-up race car driver, so... Nice. Um, anybody that used to do something a lot in their life and they don't do it anymore, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're just washed up. Yeah, he's just like, get off my lawn, kid, and turn your music down. That's, uh, that's, that's where, it. That's where I'm at these days. But hey, we got a cool show coming up, man. And I don't want to, I don't want to hold, hold, uh, hold things up here, getting to Lindsay. So you know, those out there listening, we're we're giving some love to our 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 Southern brotherhood here today. You know, we've, you know, John and I, of course, where we live in the in the Midwest, and you know, in in Pennsylvania, which I don't know what we call that, Mid Atlantic. It's kind of Northeast. It's got a little Midwest to it. So I'm not sure how we classify that, but 
you know, we of course don't live in the South and hunt in the South predominantly now. John is from Kentucky, so there is some some Southern Southernness, if you will, that maybe comes along with that. Uh, but we've not really dedicated much time in this in this show to talking about hunting the South specifically. So we thought it was high time that we bring someone on who is a true blue uh, Southern Southern boy and can talk to us a little bit about how how hunting the south might be a little bit different from hunting the midwest and 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 he he works with QDMA and he's got a lot of great insight just into where hunting's kind of headed and we kind of cover a lot of different topics I don't want to give too much away but uh we're talking with Lindsay Thomas uh from QDMA super good dude um very knowledgeable about you know the hunting industry in general and just the hunting and where and where it's headed um and he always brings great perspective and i think uh, a level of like measured conversation whenever he's discussing some topics that could be touchy um and always kind of gives a good a good perspective on it so we're looking forward to talk to him unfortunately uh john being the parking lot lizard that he is these these days we did have a technical issue uh so partway through you'll you'll notice that john wasn't any longer with us we had some uh some cell phone problems uh but otherwise uh the conversation with Lindsay was good and uh looking forward to jumping on with him anything else to add john no, no. And you know, that's the thing. Like, um, Lindsay's a cool dude, uh, very, very well-spoken, smart, super smart guy. Um, and, and it, it is, you know, I think anytime we get a chance to, you talk to somebody from the South and discuss their style of hunting and, and stuff like that. Cause it's, as we know, it's very different. And I think even the way people will approach hunting is a little different, um, at the same time. So it's always cool to talk to anybody from different parts. There's always something to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get Lindsay on. All right, folks, welcome back. And we are live and you're listening to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, fortunately for all of you out there listening, it is not just John and I. So you're getting a reprieve from the from that crazy talk uh, today. John and I are joined by a buddy of ours from Quality, Quality Deer Management Association, uh, Lindsay Thomas. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Clint. How about you guys? I'm doing good, man. I was looking forward to having you on. Looking forward to getting a little uh, education on some southern hunting and give some love to our southern brothers on some uh, some hunting tips and uh, and deer talk. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It was great meeting you guys at the ATA show, and I've really been looking forward to this. Yeah, I know we've we've connected over email and you know a bunch of different times and stuff. It was great to get to run into you. Of course, you know Ryan and the crew. Um, you know, we've had uh, Ryan on the show in the past and he'll be coming on again here soon. Mm-hmm. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, but really looking forward to diving into some Southern hunting topics, man. I know we were talking a little bit on the upfront. It's one of those things where, you know, John lives in Iowa. I live in Pennsylvania. And so of course, a lot of our conversation kind of, kind of, you know, revolves around those geographic locations. Um, truth be told, I was actually born in the South. So I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but my family's from Pennsylvania. So I got, uh, I got maybe just a little tinge of South in me, maybe just a little, <laughs> a little bit, you know, it's a, I, I like the bourbon. I like the culture, you know, it's definitely this time of year, I like the warm weather. So if I, I could, be, <laughs> I, I could easily be adopted if, if you're looking to adopt. Well, we'll welcome you back anytime you are, you're born here. We'll, uh, we'll let you in. Nice. I like it. Um, so first, before we get started, man, why don't we just do a little bit of background on you, you know, how you got started in hunting and you know, what you do for a living right now. Okay. Um, got started hunting like a lot of us did, which is someone, you know, a, a family member who, uh, could take us did so. And for me, it was my dad. Um, you know, he was mentored or raised hunting by his uncle 
And um, so he raised me and my brother and my sister as well, hunting, all three of us. And uh, so, yeah, just started from a very young age going with dad to the woods and uh, been doing it, you know, hunting and fishing my whole life. Um, I am fortunate enough as a hunter to work for the uh, Quality Deer Management Association, QVMA. I am their director of communications uh, and been in that role for 15, almost 15 years now. And what what I do in that job is uh, I am editor of QDMA's magazine, Quality Whitetails, and also oversee the website, QDMA.com, um, and our social media and our email communications. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty big uh, bowl of stuff that I handle um, and have, you know, Brian Grossman is our communications manager, works with me in that, and Cindy Compton is our design manager. Um, and pretty much the three of us manage, you know, a, a good bit of what QDMA does on the communications side. So I'm a uh, journalism is my background. I studied journalism in college and always kind of knew I wanted to be an outdoor writer and just got very fortunate um, to be with QDMA because as a as a deer hunter, I love, you know, like a lot of us, I do a lot of it. I fish, I hunt, I hunt turkeys. I'm a fanatical turkey hunter in the spring. But for me, kind of the chief passion is deer hunting but also deer management messing mm -hmm. with the population and making it better uh playing with the habitat really getting you know just elbow deep uh in the process of building better deer hunting through better deer populations mm -hmm. and so for me to be at qdma is really you know just ideal for me and i love it yeah it's uh I don't think you could find a better a better suited position for you, man, because you you're you're ate up with it as as John and I like to say. It's that's that's you know it's in your blood and uh, and it runs deep. I have a question though. Where so were you born and born and raised in the South? I mean, I can think I can kind of understand that from from the accent a little bit that we that the answer is probably <laughs> yes. Um, but where specifically? Because I know you're in Georgia now, right? If I'm not mistaken. Correct. Right. Um, always been in Georgia. I was okay. born in Savannah, Georgia on the coast, not too far from Charleston where you were born oh, and, nice. uh, um, and grew up, um, in Wayne County, Georgia, which is in Southeast Georgia, about a one, one County in from the ocean. Um, grew up on my family farm there. My dad was a farmer when I was growing up and, um, and now live in North Georgia in right outside Athens, Georgia in the home of Un the university of Georgia which is where the QDMA national headquarters is. So uh, my family, my dad still has the family farm in South Georgia and that's where he lives. And that's where I travel to do a good bit of my hunting. Um, you know, it's, that's the unfortunate part is it's four hours South of where yeah. I live yeah. um, to get back to that land. But, um, but I do, I hunt all over the state. So I live in North Georgia, hunt in South Georgia, but um, been fortunate in, in the, in some of the various jobs I've had over time that it's always been here in Georgia. Nice. Um, I, I love other parts of the country, love the West, you know, travel a good bit, but I guess I'm, I'm not complaining that, that I'm still here in Georgia. It's home. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could find a lot worse places to live than Georgia. Georgia is a really cool state. I like, uh, I've got to spend a little bit of time in Georgia. Um, and it's one of those places where, uh, that you definitely find your, you can see yourself living there. It does. It wouldn't take much for the imagination to kind of uh, plop plop yourself there to, uh, permanently. So the nice weather, good good people, great culture, and uh, you know for you know this I'm going to kind of do a little uh, lead in or foreshadowing here that has a, a really good music uh, uh, scene as well. And I think that you left out one of the most important parts of your biography because I know that you are a a little bit of a guitar picker too, aren't you? 
I am, and, and you are too, right? Yeah, that's right, man. So how's uh, so when did you start playing? Oh, I guess I would say um, just before I started high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad played. He actually sort of taught himself when I was even younger than that. And then, you know, when you got guitars sitting around the house and, you know, hearing country music and southern rock, country rock all the time, you know, you just eventually start messing with it. And mm-hmm. I did. And, and uh, my brother plays as well. My brother, uh, Rands who is a wildlife biologist, um, he actually is um, more talented than I am. He actually makes a little money at it, playing here around town and uh, some gigs. I mostly just entertain myself. And, um, and I kind of like, like to say that I play brewgrass, which means the more beer you drink, the better I sound. So, um, uh, there you go. But I enjoy it. And, and in fact, um, just got back from a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting, and they gave out as some swag for attendees – uh, guitar picks that said Nashville, Tennessee on it. So I came home with one of those. Nice. That's a good deal, man. Yeah. I hear you. It's a, um, yeah, definitely. I like talking to folks who, who are deer hunters, but that are also share that same common bond of being a, uh, a guitar picker for sure. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's one of those things where it, it's interesting. And I want to ask you this next question because I find it to there to be a lot of parallels, at least there were for me. And then this will kind of start to help us lead into, I guess, our, our deer, more specific deer conversations. But I'm just curious if you find any parallels that exist between playing music, writing and, and chasing whitetails. Is there any, cause we had Jimmy Herman on and I don't know if you know Jimmy at all, but he's big time guitar player, fiddle player for the Carrie Underwood band. And we had a good conversation about deer hunting with him cause he's as fanatical about deer hunting as he is his guitar playing. And we had a good chat just about if he felt there were any parallels between them. And he really didn't, but I feel kind of the opposite. So I'm just curious what your take is. Yeah, I guess I'm equally bad at all three. Is that one way I can sum it up? <laughs> uh, um, that's great. <laughs> um, no, but that's a great question. And you're right. Um, you know, certainly one of the appeals to music and playing guitar and playing songs and the songs that I play other people's songs, I don't, I've never written a song, um, is, you know, I love songs that tell stories or that use language in very, um, creative or satisfying ways, just like reading good writing Mm -hmm. and doing good writing. Um, it, it, so yeah, it's sort of a, a good tie in. And then also, you know, in terms of hunting, there's the sort of, um, meditative or relaxation qualities of that you know being out in in hunting and being immersed in nature and writing is is a way to sort of capture that just like um, music um and playing music for me personally is you know a way to chill and and relax and enjoy language and and so yeah there's there's definitely a crossover there and and a tie-in you know if there was a venn diagram of these there's definitely a a synergy there. Right. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned story, right? Because I think, you know, that's one thing when we look at, and I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of turn it over to here to John in a second, cause I'm pretty sure he probably has a, um, a point of view on this just because when you think about hunting now and you think about social media and you think about some of the uh, media opportunities that are out there, this format, you know, the podcast format or video format or whatever, whatever the case might be, especially when you get into video and like hunting shows and stuff like that, it feels like sometimes, you know, on some of the, what I'll call like the grander scale or the gr- more uh, grandiose produced, you know, hunting, hunting shows, possibly not all of them. Not, I don't want to generalize here and paint with a broad brush, but I think they're sometimes most often kind of uh, provided as an example only because they're most readily accessible. But sometimes that full story gets away from you and it becomes about an end result where 
a lot of times that's not always what the what the hunt was about necessarily. I think that mm-hmm. I've, I've personally had great hunts that I came home empty handed and there was no arrow that was released, but it didn't diminish the story that I had with the hunt. John, what do you, what do you think, man? Cause I know you're, you're a video guy and you have, you know, your web show that's awesome. And, and I know that your kind of focus is more on like the storytelling and that you kind of, you know, that's kind of where you kind of, you know, how you paint your picture. So I'm just curious your perspective. Well, um, you know, growing up in Kentucky, uh, learned how to play basketball, but, uh, you know, definitely did not learn how to play guitar. So if I'm going <laughs> to tell a story, <laughs> it's going to have to be through, uh, through the hunts, but no, I mean, you know, you brought up an interesting point with social media and the easy consumption for everybody to, to share your hunts and, and to see everybody else's hunts. Um, you know, I think the grit, this, the days of the grip and grins, um, is kind of done. And I think there is a big movement where people are seeking, um, you know, more of the story. And, you know, it's just like, you know, we were talking about just a second ago, as far as, um, a a good, a good song, a a good, uh, reading, um, you know, spoken words in a creative way. Um, I think that has, you know, gotten into the, the film side. And maybe it's something that also came from the major motion pictures. I mean, we're a long ways away from the black and white, you know, picture shows uh, of old. So hunting has, um, the hunting stories have evolved with it as well. And I think it's another way for people to express, you know, why it is they hunt and, you know, and what did that hunt mean to them? I think it's a, I think it's a great movement. Uh, I can't get enough of it. There's so many talented storytellers out there. Uh, Some of the best are, uh, Jason Matzinger. I mean, that guy yeah. is just a born hunting storyteller. Um, Donnie Vincent does a phenomenal job as well. Yeah. And there's many, many others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I think John, I think hit the nail on the head where it's like people were wanting to consume that story and whether they're getting it in the written word word now, or whether it's, you know, the, the format that it's taken in video, that's kind of changing shape. Um, I think when you have good storytellers that are telling the right story, I think it does nothing but help hunters and hunting in general um and i think as long as we keep that as our focus we'll be in good shape but uh it, we'll, we'll move away from the hippy dippy crunchy stuff here we got we got a little we got we got some feels right there we might want to just get into some get our man card back and talk some deer hunting here real quick <laughs> but uh so let's take a minute here i know you mentioned on the upfront you know that you of course work for qdma and in, in, in um in the capacity of the director of communications and you the editor of the quality whitetail magazine and and so forth. But I wanted to kind of just take a second and, and, and talk a little bit about at a high level, what, what QDMA kind of stands for, what their initiatives are. I know you guys had a really big meeting this last year and I believe it was in new Orleans, you know, your, your, your annual meeting. Um, and you guys kind of not, I don't want to say redefined, but kind of relayed out your roadmap for the, the next five or so years. And I just want to kind of give an opportunity to kind of make sure that we kind of express what that is and what QDMA is doing and what's kind of on the horizon for them. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's, I appreciate that opportunity. And, and you're right. Last year at our convention in, in uh, New Orleans was kind of when we rolled out this um, shift and it's not really changing who we are. Uh, the, I guess the story I would tell on that is that, you know, where QDMA came from when we were founded 30 years ago this year in 1988, um, it was it was an answer to a stage in America's deer hunting history where some changes need to be made in the way we hunted and managed deer herds. 
you know, for, for a long time, we were in the restoration mode, bringing deer back. And it was don't shoot a doe because that's the future of your population. Meanwhile, take the first deer that comes along that's legal um, because there are not many of them. And you may not, you know, the idea of passing a, a legal buck, an antler buck was crazy because you may not see another one that season. Mm-hmm. And so that meant pressure was high on yearling bucks and almost nil on does. We passed a point fairly quickly where that was a useful paradigm. Um, and as the years went by, we started reaching a crisis level, really, in a lot of areas where deer populations were uh, way too high for the habitat to support them in a healthy condition. But these populations were skewed toward does. Very few bucks were in the population, and the bucks that were out there were all young because most of them were getting shot at a year and a half, and mm-hmm. very few were making it into adult ages. Well, QDMA was founded on the biological side to take science and take sound deer biology and 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 package it for hunters to understand how to make the right choices locally, whether, you know, when do, when is doe harvest needed and when is it not, and if so, how many, and the benefits of letting some bucks reach adult age classes. What, you know, how does your hunting change locally when you've got a few adult bucks out there? And, of course, it's it's more fun. It's more exciting. You see the behaviors that you don't get to see when you don't have adult bucks in the population. All the things that make, you know, November such uh, have such an appeal to all of us scrapes and rubs and chasing and fighting and and all of that and of course seeing more adult bucks and even side benefits like finding more sheds and things like that so you know that was really the big push for the longest time for qdma was uh, encouraging hunters to look at a different way of managing deer you know rather than just being a consumer out there to take the first legal deer be a manager and make decisions locally that can improve your own hunting well we kind of reached a point where we feel like we had done about the best we could do on that front Surveys lately show that, you know, the majority, more than 80 percent in some surveys of American deer hunters pretty much already do QDM. You know, they are taking does. They are protecting young bucks to some extent. Um, And the harvest statistics that we see coming out of most of the states show, you know, over years, decades, a huge shift in uh, age structure of buck harvest. Many, many more adult bucks, mature bucks being taken today by American hunters and a lot fewer yearling bucks. Um, herds are more balanced. They are maybe too low in many areas. And, and we had some years here lately with some combinations of things like EHD outbreaks and, and some rough winters and, and some other things that, you know, maybe took us and did, in fact, take deer populations too low in, in some areas. We're bouncing back from a lot of that. Um, and so the bottom line was we kind of felt like, you know, from a management standpoint, could we, are there deer hunters out there that, that we could continue to educate on, on the, the benefits of QDM? Yeah, there are. And that mission, that part of what we do will never change. But at the same time, we looked around and we kind of realized that on the horizon, meantime, some pretty serious threats had come up to deer and deer hunting and, and our hunting traditions. And of course, y'all can name them as quick as I can, mm-hmm. uh, not just loss of, of hunters, um, loss of access loss of habitat, but threats as well to the deer resource. Um, you know, uh, outbreaks of EHD in places where that virus had never been seen before. Um, and then, of course, chronic wasting disease, which is a different uh, disease. CWD um, has become and is growing uh, in seriousness and has become a real true threat to long term to deer and deer hunting. Um, so things like that. Um, you know, the changing demographics of America and uh, and how that affects the future of 
hunters and hunter hunting recruitment, hunter recruitment. All of these things, we kind of said, you know, we really need to turn it, you know, if we're going to have deer hunting for the future, we need, someone needs to be addressing these things. And that's what we've done. We have uh, come up with what we're working under right now is a set of five-year goals that we announced last year. And we challenged ourselves in a number of areas and laid out a big uh, list of five-year goals you can go on our website and see them. Anybody can can read all about them, and of course in the magazine, you know. But it is things like raising certain amounts of money over the next five years. Where I think we're going for a million dollars over the course of five years to go to deer research to help on questions like how do we answer CWD. Uh, we are uh, trying to expand QDM cooperatives, which are you know landowners or or hunters on leases and and other lands and even public lands, reaching across property lines and working across broader areas to improve habitat and improve deer hunting. Um, those are really uh, can play a strong role in the future of deer hunting in a lot of ways and even to address some of these other problems we're having. So we want to promote cooperatives. Um, we want to, you know, when it comes to the access question, our first priority with that is rather than just going out there and creating more public land uh, for deer hunting to improve access, our feeling is there's a lot of public land out there that is underutilized because it's poorly managed. Mm-hmm. So rather than just buy more acres, we want to see um, states and, and the federal government better manage the public land we have because you can increase access just as well that way. Right. If you take an acre, you're not managing it, managing and, and improve it. You know, you can produce more recreation on that now with land you already own. So we want to see the habitat better managed on public land to improve access. Uh, we want to grow uh, mentors and mentoring programs and hunter recruitment. We want to increase venison sharing is one of our big goals. And, mm-hmm. and again, the specifics are laid out. And Clint, you and I have discussed this because, uh, as a side note, you've got your first article in Quality Whitetails That's coming right. up in a new issue. Yeah, And uh, we're proud to have it. It's a good one because it fits real well with our goals. It is about your experiences sharing venison with a neighbor who doesn't hunt and the outcome of that. And this is what we're seeing is that venison is really a great, you know, as we talked, as you talked about uh, venison diplomacy mm-hmm. uh, or venison outreach, you know, whatever you want to have, you want to put it, but sharing venison with people who don't hunt and exposing them to the idea of this, you know, providing your own food, uh, the sustainability of it, you know, the, you know, sort of the local eating and, and locavore movement, all of those sort of aspects, sharing venison can really open a non-hunter's eyes to what hunting is really about, who we are, uh, and solve a lot of the misperceptions there and, and, and help us not only, even if it doesn't, you know, you don't, giving venison to someone doesn't turn them into a hunter, at least it can open the door to sustain that support that we enjoy today into the future from non-hunters supporting what we do. So venison donation is a big one, but there's a long list and I'd encourage your listeners to Go to QDMA.com and check out these goals. And, and it's all of these things are intended to address these concerns that I listed that we see the biggest challenges to deer and deer hunting in the future, both near and in the long term. And uh, they're pretty, pretty ambitious goals, I got to tell you. And mm-hmm. we've kind of laid out a big job for ourselves and our members and our volunteers. And we're going to be calling on all of them to contribute. It's going to rely a lot on um not just our members, you know, staying members or joining or giving us money to go do these things, but actually participating, right. donating the venison, mentoring other adult hunters, mentoring young hunters, um, you know, helping improve habitat on public lands, you know, uh, donating so money can go to research, all of these things. We're, we're calling on that help. 
yeah, the, the good thing is, or the cool thing is, is that I know I've mentioned to you and John and I've talked about this too, is like, we're getting ready to have Ryan on as well. And we're going to be covering a lot of these things in more, in more detail, you know, talking about the heritage and tradition and where things are kind of trending. And, um, you know, cause if, you know, I, I don't want to give away the, 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 I guess the, the punchline, if you will, or the, all the, all the goods, but, you know, if you take a look at the data, um, and the information that's out there that has been acquired, you know, through you guys or whether it's the, uh, game and fish or whomever, um, there's some eye popping information in there that if you're a hunter, regardless if you're a deer hunter or not, should, should scare you, you know, or should at least make you take pause if nothing else. Um, yeah. not just at the numbers per se that you see today, but how they map out in terms of their trajectory over the next five to 10 years. Right. Um, that's when it starts to get really kind of, um, um, a, a little frightening. Um, and I think once people, I think, understand that if they don't currently see the value in, in getting involved and making sure to, you know, retain what we have, um, if not grow it, um, then I think that that, those, those things will certainly make an impact. Um, but yep. So with that, you you brought something up there that I wanted to kind of touch on because I want to turn this back to the, the southern hunting topic here. So you'd mentioned you know the different outbreaks of some some diseases and, and stuff like that have have occurred, whether it was EHD, CWD, whatever the case might be. You know how is that? I know we talk about it. At least I know of it from a Midwestern perspective and a Northeastern perspective because I know there's been some states in the Midwest that have been you know impacted. Um, you know, with CWD specifically. And then I know that there's uh, Pennsylvania, you know, my hometown where my, both my uh, family properties are, are in the, the hot zone, if you will. Um, and so how is this impacting the South in general? I mean, are you guys, is it, is it something that people are super concerned about? Are there a lot of States that have a lot of, you know, hot zones or hot areas, if you will. And so what's, what's the status there? Yeah. The Southeast is really kind of still the holdout, although, Unfortunately, just two weeks ago, we got the news that Mississippi discovered its first case, uh, positive deer um, in Issaquina County, which is on the Mississippi River near the Louisiana border. Um, And so that was very unfortunate news. Uh, You know, yeah, largely, at least looking at it from my perspective in Georgia, the next closest positive we had was up in uh, West Virginia. Um, so the deep south and southeast uh, really has remained fairly clean to to this point. But, you know, now it's in Mississippi. We keep seeing it pop up and jump. And, you know, I, I, I hate to be a pessimist. I really hope that we find an answer to this problem, a, a vaccine or something. We There's no hope. There's nothing on the horizon right now for that. But every, a lot of people are working on it. Mm-hmm. But the way it seems to continue spreading, um, I, I'm afraid that, uh, well, I'm not going to make any predictions. I'd like to try to remain optimistic, but um, yeah, yeah, still most of the Southeast is is without CWD. At least it hasn't been discovered yet, and I, I hope we can keep it that way. Right? Yeah, I hear that. So, so with that, it sounds like you know, especially your family farm and stuff like that. It sounds like you guys are pretty much in the clear. So, you know, I don't think it, if I'm reading the tea leaves here, it doesn't sound like it impacted your most recent deer season. And with that, how 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 did things go this year? Did you have have find success? Was it a, was it a rough one? What was the, what was the prognosis for that? Uh, I mean, I had a good season, not in terms of deer harvest, but just, uh, you know, chances to get out and go, um, go with friends and, and just have some really enjoyable hunts, hunting with my dad a good bit, um, at our, our family farm and just had a good, good time, you know, with him. We saw some bucks. We kind of have a, at the farm there, 
Um, it's a little bit, you know, just like anybody, there's a cycle where some years you've got uh, a handful of older bucks you're looking at on camera or two, you know, one or two that you really got your eye on. And this year, um, was maybe a little bit of a down year for us where, um, I don't, we didn't have a whole lot of bucks on camera that were older than about three and a half. So, Mm -hmm. um, we still got out there and hunted during the rut and, and, uh, and had a good time, saw some of the bucks that you know i saw at least one that i would have taken if i'd gotten a shot at him and and, but just didn't have a chance um so we had a good season and uh i got some some venison for the freezer uh with a late season doe harvest and and had a good time i i do uh some hunts each year and have for a number of years uh with friends of mine i do two hunts i do a hunt each year with friends of mine who all have boys around the same age Mm -hmm. and another hunt with all friends of mine who all have girls around the same age (laughs) we do a father son and a father daughter hunt each year and um i always look forward to those every year and um so we yeah we had another good time with those hunts this year as well nice yeah i got a little girl who i've i got her shooting a bow i guess when she was probably about seven i think and uh she's she's a pretty good shot i'm hoping I'm holding out some hope this year that she's strong enough to pull back enough weight that I might be able to get her in a, in a tree stand for an early season hunt this year. We'll, we'll see how that pans out, but she seems like she still wants to go. She likes to turkey hunt with me. She, she might end up being more of a turkey hunter than she is a deer hunter, which is uh, good for her, bad for me. Cause I'm the, I tell John all the time, I'm the world's worst turkey hunter that you've probably ever met. <laughs> it's, it's, they seem, they seem to uh, elude me. John, on the other hand, man, you, uh, you usually tend to get into the birds, don't you? Yes. Yes. I love turkey hunting. Um, I think I've, I've harvested, um, four or five Boone and Crockett's, uh, the last couple of years. That's the beauty of turkeys. They're all booners. You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> you know, I, I know, you know exactly was, what you mean. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, there was that funny commercial that was on, um, that somebody did on Facebook last year, or it might've even been a little bit longer, but it was the two guys sitting in the blind, and they're like, "Oh, look, there's one coming in." You know, ah, he's just a three year old. We need to let him go another year. That was so funny, you know. And they're like, ah, "Wait, no, no, I think one of his spurs is broke off." Yeah, hard pass, hard pass. You know, <laughs> that was the funniest thing in the world because that's the beauty of turkey hunting. Um, you know, we all get to be superstars, and we all kill Boone and Crockett. You know, Tom's uh, uh, during that season, so that's a that's a cool thing. I wanted to. Um, I hate to go backwards on our conversation, but you guys were, were talking and, and I didn't want to cut anybody off. Um, we were talking about some of the, the, the things that have affected deer hunting. Um, and I want to get uh, Lindsay's take on, we talk about uh, geographical locations and uh, different demographics and age, but there's also a little bit different style of hunting. And I think a little bit different style um, mentality when it comes to deer hunting. You know, like I said, I grew up and cut my teeth hunting in Kentucky. And it in my area, the way I grew up initially, it was still very much if it's brown, it's down. If it flies, it dies. Um, and then, you know, you get into Iowa and as some people look at Iowa and they say, okay, that's like trophy bucks. And um, I've even noticed it with a younger generation around southeast Iowa that a lot of these kids, they kind of grew up with that. So a lot of these kids are like, yeah, you know, I saw a good four-year-old, but I let him go. I wasn't passing four-year-olds when I was in Kentucky. I promise you, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that being said, I look at things like I call, we'll call them social media bullies. 
is somebody afraid to post a picture of a deer that they killed because it's not big enough or it wasn't old enough? So does that deter people from hunting in general and getting into the sport? Um, we talked about the lack of properties and I'm guilty of this myself. I try to lease up as much ground as I possibly can, but you know, like I said, I'm guilty that I hate that I do that, but that's what I want. I want big chunks of ground to manage and, and really try to focus on QDM and get some really nice, mature, you know, big bucks running around. But if everybody does that, a guy that lives in a subdivision may not have access to any ground unless it's public. And one thing I can say here in Southeast Iowa, we have huge tracts of public land. The problem is you look at old, old Google Earth images and you see these really nice sections of set aside that now are just grown up cedars and they've lost the funding and they're not doing food plots anymore and they're not maintaining that set aside. Um, one of the things that I've been able to do here in Southeast Iowa is I became a hunter safety instructor. And the, one of the coolest things, I mean, I love seeing the kids in the class. That's cool because, you know, as we talk about, that's kind of the future of hunting and the next generation. But I tell you what I like seeing the most is there was an adult that was in the class. Um, so, you know, and Lindsay, you, you mentioned this too, as far as introducing new hunters, it's not just introducing kid hunters. It's introducing maybe a full grown adult that's 35, 40 years old. One of the benefits that I have seen with that is if you teach, you know, you've got a young kid that's eight, nine, 10 years old in the class, that's great. And you plant, you plant those uh, ethics early and hope that they maintain that um, throughout their hunting career. But with an older generation, you know, they're going to work and they're talking to people that may be non-hunters. So I think they can be as much of a positive if not greater positive influence to the rest of the communities and the rest of the people that maybe look at hunting in a, in a negative way. Um, I just wanted to throw those pieces in there. Like I said, I, I apologize for going backwards. No, let's go backwards. I think those are good, good things. What, what are your, what are your initial thoughts, Lindsay? Yeah. The, the adult thing is something that is, and I threw that in there because it's something we've realized and other people are realizing too. And, and that is that, you know, we spend a lot of time, a lot of groups have spent a lot of time taking kids hunting and that certainly is important. I mean, we realize many of us got into this, not all of us, but many of us got into this because a parent took us or an uncle or a you know, grandparent or something like that. Um, and so we're trying to replicate that, you know, for kids that don't have that, don't have anyone who hunts in their family who can take them, let's take them. But what we're starting to realize is not that that's ineffectual or, you know, has not been worthwhile. It has been. But what we're starting to realize is, Rather than take the kid hunting, if, the, if you take a, a young person hunting, but they still don't have someone in their family who's an adult who can continue to foster that interest, you know, that is prob has a good chance of fizzling. But if you take the adult in the family and you teach them and you mentor them and you get them into hunting and teach them how to do it, then they can mentor their kids. So it's sort of the let's do this in the, in the right direction approach. And I think you're going to see uh, not that you know we're going to continue with with our youth outreach, but we're going to bolt on a a lot of new programs which we've already begun reaching out to adults and 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 uh, like I said, bringing bringing those adult onset hunters into the club. Yeah, I think John, I think you touched on something else that was interesting, was just like the cultural cultural difference, and this is kind of I guess a nice segue into starting to kind of really dig it into 
you know, the, the, some of the differences and similarities between, you know, hunting the South or hunting in the Northeast or hunting in, hunting in the Midwest. So I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, as John mentioned, you know, a, a big thing, especially when you get to the Midwest is you're looking for either, you know, hunting private ground, you know, maybe that your family owns or that you own yourself, or you're looking for, you know, uh, ground to lease as, as John mentioned. Um, and then of course the other option is, is public, you know, so what, what, what's the most prevalent, I guess, opportunities for folks in the South who, who are hunting? It's like, is there, is there a lot of private property owners still that that's where how the majority of the folks are, are doing their deer hunting? And is it, are they getting out on public land more often? Is it, do they do more leasing? Like, I'm just, I'm not that familiar with how the South operates in terms of like how they get their access. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear. Hardcore deer hunters need tools that can keep up. We don't baby our gear and take on whatever Mother Nature dishes out. Check out Wicked Tree Gear handsaws and pole saws at wickedtreegear.com. Use promo code TRUTH to save yourself 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. And get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. And now back to the show. Right. Well, just in the east um, and really where most people hunt whitetails, you know, it's all predominantly done on private land. Um, out West, it's the reverse of that. And you know, you know, you've been out West and, and you know that they've all of the, the, uh, national land that's out there and national forests and, um, it's really extensive. And so that most public, most hunting in the West takes place on public land. Well, anywhere in the East and, and anywhere whitetails are pretty much, it's the reverse. So in the South, just like where you are, it's, you know, most of the hunting takes place on private land, but just like. I think any other eastern state, we have a lot of state-owned public land that we call WMAs, wildlife management areas, and I think a lot of states call them WMAs. Um, and we have federal lands. We have you know federal refuges, uh, national wildlife refuges that uh, many of which offer permit hunting or you know quota hunting. Um, we have national forest land in Georgia. We have it's a wide range of different types of public land. Army Corps of Engineers land around reservoirs um, that's open to hunting. So, yeah, there's a diversity and, and a big supply, a large supply of public land here in Georgia and, and in most southeastern states, just like um, in the Midwest and Northeast, too, has, you know, state and federal uh, lands open to public hunting. Right. So what about, you know, I heard tell at one point that, you know, hunting clubs were something that were kind of um, – I guess that were more prevalent in, in the South than they are in the, in the North or, or the Midwest. Is that, is that something that's still true today? And, and what's the difference between, I guess, a hunting club and like folks who have like a deer camp in, in the North or in the Midwest? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Uh, okay. Same thing. Hunting club is just a term in the South. That's just kind of, you know, uh, vocabulary is really the only difference I think. And, um, you know, when I first came to work for QDMA and started doing quality whitetails, um, before that I had worked for a state specific hunting and fishing magazine here in Georgia. And, um, so now I had readers who were in Iowa and Michigan and Pennsylvania and places that I, you know, where I didn't really know the hunting culture as well as I knew it here. 
Um, and that was one of the first things I encountered was that a lot of people would say, what is a hunting club? And I just threw that term around like I assumed everyone understood it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I learned real quick that that was a term that you had to be careful about because some people, some readers didn't know what that was. Um, and it's simply that, like I say, um, it is simply the term that, that I grew up with hearing people say, and I say it myself, you know, going to the hunting club this weekend. And it's merely, in most cases, in the South or in Georgia, when you're talking about a hunting club, you are talking about a land that you've leased. Um, and most often it is uh, privately owned timber company land. And the timber companies lease the hunting rights out to uh, individuals and they set up a, a, you know, a group of friends, family, whoever, you know, strangers they, they can recruit through the, the forums on, online to join their club and basically put together enough people to afford the lease rate and still have enjoyable hunting on this property. And, uh, yeah, it, that, and I, and I think that leasing, um, is more, uh, goes back farther in the South than it does in other parts of the country. It's newer in the Midwest and the North as a concept, this idea of leasing hunting rights. And, mm -hmm. and to me, even discovering that in many States that, um, uh, you could literally walk onto someone's private land and hunt without asking. Yeah. Um, unless they had posted it. I, that is a foreign concept to me when I first heard about that, because in the South, it's not that way at all. You can't go on someone else's land even without asking. Right. That's trespassing if, if they care to, to prosecute you for it. Um, so, you know, but much of the land in the South traditionally was owned by large timber companies. Um, and so they, you know, once you get outside the, the, the towns, um, if it wasn't a farm, it was it was timberland. It was probably owned by a timber company, and they were trying to make extra income by leasing out the hunting rights too. And so, most a lot of hunting by folks who didn't own their own land and weren't hunting public land was done on leased uh, timberlands. And it just came to be in the South that we called that the hunting club. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's not a it's not like a golf club right. <laughs> where you know the the elite go to hunt. It is. You know, and I, it's some good I've old been, boys. It is. I've been in some clubs that I've uh, been a member of clubs where the camp, you know, it looks like a third world yeah. <laughs> a country. It is not anything high end. I can tell you it's just, right. you know, tents and shacks and, and whatever anybody can find us to, to uh, sleep in to, to spend the weekend deer hunting. So, right. Yeah. No. yeah that, but it, when you just you said it, you know, it's up there. You have the, the hunt camp scene with everybody gathered around mm -hmm. the campfire and and eating venison and cleaning guns and, and getting gear together and getting ready to, to hunt at sunrise. It's the same thing here. Just a lot more people call them hunting clubs. Right. So that, that land that's been, that was owned by the, you said it, timber company, right? Is who owned it? Correct. A lot of them at least. Yeah. So is it the way it's been timbered? I mean, does it typically make for, for good deer habitat, just the way that it was, has been cut? Cause I'm, I'm imagining it's probably been select cut to a degree. Cause whenever they're making, if they're cutting for, you know, boards, I'd imagine it has to be a certain size. You know, if it's paper timber, it might be a little bit different story. But I'm just kind of curious what the, I guess, what the habitat is like on some of those those lease properties. Because I've seen some hunting in Ohio. Um, one of the pieces of public ground I hunt um, is it butts up to a piece of uh, uh, timber company land. And that timber company land holds so many deer because that is just it's been timbered off in so many different sections and it's just nasty thick that I mean you couldn't walk yep. through it if you wanted to but deer can get through it so it's a great safe haven for them. Um, so I'm just curious what that habitat looks like on those properties. Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, obviously a timber company is going to you know they're trying to make money out of the timber resources there, and in the past and, and it 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 differed 
geographically. For example, here in coastal Georgia, we have a number of pulp and paper mills. And so demand just within the vicinity of those mills was higher for pulp wood than in locations that weren't near a mill. And so much of the land was managed for pulp wood, and that's young timber. In other words, they're planting pine trees, growing them to about, uh, you know, 15 years of age, thereabouts, till they're just minimum sized for pulp wood, and cutting them and clear cutting them, running them to the mill, replanting that area, row to row pines. And that that is, you know, when it's young and has just been clear cut and, and, and the timber is the newly planted seedlings are young, that's good habitat. It does quickly, the pines like that quickly lock out and, and uh, shade the understory mm-hmm. and become kind of a pine straw desert right. fairly, you know, within a few years. So it's sort of a constant rotation. Pulpwood land gets turned over a lot faster. But here lately, you know, in the last few years, you see a lot more timber companies managing for saw timber. Mm-hmm. And they are doing, you know, thinning and select cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're plant, they may be planting plantation pine row to row on the high ground. But then they're coming in at, at a stage where some of it is marketable and cutting out rows every fifth row, every third row or whatever type of thinning they're doing and leaving the, the remaining trees because, you know, the studies show when you thin them like that, the remaining trees grow faster. Right. So they're growing bigger trees for saw timber, for lumber. And then when you thin like that, you're putting the sunlight back on the ground and those thin stands are very productive for understory forage and cover. So that's great for deer. And you see a lot more timber companies these days managing a mix of land and a lot more uh, thin timber rather than clear cutting and ro- growing pulp wood in a, on a very short rotation. Which so I think the the thinning and, and saw timber is is much better practice for deer habitat. Um, and yeah, that's uh, you know, but in other areas, some of them are growing hardwoods and, and harvesting hardwoods in in hardwood drainages or hardwood ridges in in some of the uplands. Um, and focusing more on that. But the, just overall, the in the South, throughout the South, and you can see this if you look at aerials of the, the countryside, and, uh, and I've done this, the South in general sees, the, the forest sees a lot more regular turnover uh, than any other portion of the country, mm. particularly the Northeast. Um, the Northeast is heavily forested, but rarely uh, harvested. Mm. Um, you got a lot of um, mature impact forest, uh, with closed canopies and not much in the understory for deer. You know, it, it looks pretty if you like a big, pretty oak tree, and I right. do. But if it just goes on forever and there's no very little young forest or understory, that's not good for a deer. So that's kind of the primary difference between the southeast and the northeast. And in the Midwest, as you know, forest is sort of in the, in the uh, minority. It's mm-hmm. mostly open ground and farmland. Mm-hmm. And forests are more um, of the strips um, and creek drainages interconnecting or, or between all the fields, uh, whereas it's in, in the southeast forests dominate. Right. So I'm kind of interested. You know, it's the South has. I, I'm going to plead. You know, being naive here to hunting in the South at all. You know, so it, it, I'm going to have to. You know, I guess treat me like I am a first time hunter in the South. <laughs> like I've never, <laughs> I've never stepped step foot in the timber. You know, what is what is the biggest difference, I think, in your opinion, between hunting the South and hunting hunting anywhere else? If you had to choose one thing and said, you know, this is one thing that's just drastically different when you come to the South. Uh, yeah, it's kind of what I just described, and that is that cover is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, you know, unlike the Midwest and Northeast, our growing season is much longer. Uh, plants grow faster, and spaces that are left 
uh, bacon in the sun don't stay that way for long, things grow and, and seedlings and vines and shrubs take off and fill that space very quickly. Um, and, you know, within a, a very short time, it's become a forest again. And so there's very and all of that dominates. And so that's really the, the biggest difference that that you will see when you come down here to hunt is sort of a it's not just a natural picture of where you want to be to hunt the deer. I guess what I'm saying, you know, and, I, and I've been in airplanes and, and flown over the Midwest flying up north. And look down and going, man, I'd love to hunt land like that because <laughs> it's got these, you know, hold out your hand and spread your fingers apart. Yeah. And that's what the, the woods look like. And you yeah. go, boy, all you got to do is hunt one of those fingers and you're going to be with the deer. Right. Uh, the South is the different. You fly over the South and what do you see? Everything's green. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are certainly farm fields, but for the most part, green dominates. And, and a lot of particularly timber company land that people are leasing to hunt. And a lot of public land is managed this way because some of it is even timber company land that's leased for public hunting. Um, it is, you know, much it's solid forest. And a lot of hunters, even uh, on leased land, find it hard to find space to, to squeeze in a few food plots. I was just uh, going to say, yeah. Trying to grow a tree on every, you know, every place they can. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it. It is. If I dropped you on the ground down here and said, where do you want to go hang your stand? It's not as simple as looking at an aerial and going, well, here's where the deer are probably going to be. Right. You can't do that. You have to get out on the ground and go see um, all these acres and then decide, well, over here we've got, you know, acorns and white oaks and that kind of thing. So it, it, when those are falling, that'll be the place to be, you know, scout and find fruit, scout and find, you know, other um, travel patterns. And if you got a food plot, you start scouting and seeing where the deer are, how they're accessing that. You really scouting is so much more important. You have to get out there and see the ground. You can't look at a map and rely on bottlenecks and funnels and things like that to just immediately show you where you want to be. Because we just don't have. Uh, right. Very rarely do you have uh, a funnel or right. a bottleneck created by the setup of the forest cover. Right. So I guess is there is there challenge are there challenges also in the realm of you know I guess lack of I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this lack of topography or elevation change because that's one thing you know you can always kind of look at it's like to your point if you have a lot of understory and it's just it's green and you don't have all these little funnels that are kind of being created by you know breakup of the forest if you will it's like you know the next thing you would start to look toward and be like okay so what are my what's my topography telling me and where is the topography creating these pinch points or, or saddles to get into and stuff like that. So I, when I visually look, when I, in my mind's eye, when I think of the South, it's, I'm thinking of more flat terrain, right? Now I know there are areas of the South that, you know, you do get into some mountain ranges and like that and stuff like that. But I think of it predominantly as being less hilly and less mountainous. Is, is that true? Or is that just a figment of my imagination? How does that play into, into hunting, you know, that, that type of setup? Yeah, we've got a little bit of all of it. Um, you know, in South Georgia, where I'm from, it's definitely flat. That's the lower coastal plain. You're literally, you know, standing where what used to be the sea floor mm-hmm. a few million years ago. I mean, it is flat. And uh, we literally call it the flatwoods. And um, so, yeah, there's no top topography. The, the elevation change is so subtle, you barely can tell it most of the time. Um, to where I am in North Georgia, which is called uh, what the physiographic region is called the Piedmont, meaning foothills, mm-hmm. um, because it is the foothills of the southern Appalachian Mountains. So in North Georgia, we've actually got, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains, that which are Appalachian Mountains. And there you truly do get 
you know, the ridges and the valleys and the saddles and um, things like that that can affect, you know, as I understand it, uh, from folks who hunt those types of areas that definitely create uh, travel patterns that you can um, take advantage of, like mm-hmm. deer cutting through saddles to get from one valley to another or running ridges and going off of points down into a valley um, that and, and bedding along the you know, mid slopes of ridges um, so that they can kind of look down and sort of see, uh, have a good vantage point over danger. Those things do exist in northern Georgia, north Alabama, um, you know, places like that. Tennessee, of course, is is right. um, got a lot of topography um, in Kentucky, you know, as well. North Carolina has mountains. North Carolina is like Georgia. So is South Carolina and that there are mountains in the northern parts of the state, but, you know, flat coastal plains in the rest of it. So, yeah, we've got a little bit of, of all of it. Right. So, but the kind of the connecting thing, again, is that through <clears throat> in all these states, mountain, mountainous or not, is the ubiquitous nature of the forest cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that would be <laughs> that would be a tough hunt, man. It's, it's, I kind of I'm, I'm picturing it in my mind and it, and it reminds me of, you know, going to almost like a northeast forest where you don't get that breakup. You enjoy the benefit of having you know, some elevation change, like when you get up into the New England states and stuff like that. But whenever you get up into those big woods, it's like, it, you, it's kind of what you're talking about. Now, you're not talking about the significant understory that you're talking about in terms of how much growth they have, but just in terms of blocks of timber not being broken up, they've got, you know, pretty pretty good coverage. So what I kind of keep going to is, you know, is how do you find bedding? in that in that amount of understory because i mean it sounds to me like almost everything in anywhere could be bedding you just said it it's more (laughs) like how do you not find bedding right it's everywhere because like i say again you know for example we're greening up right now as i speak there are blooms on the trees right now uh there's a crabapple tree in my yard that's leafing out so the growing season's beginning and it doesn't end until you know we get hard frost in november and so that really is compared to up north where things are much slower it's it's a clock that's always running on your habitat your habitat is always aging in the south quickly and space again like i said spaces that aren't uh, maintained by someone and and kept you know the clock rewound on it are aging and filling up with vegetation and that's aging and shading out eventually and becoming a forest. And so, um, it's just cover everywhere. You know, a clear cut done by a timber company is wide open, uh, for about a year. And then it's going to be neck deep in briars and lots of other good things for deer. But, you know, sit there and look at a hundred acre square clear cut that's neck deep in briars and tell me where the bottleneck is. There ain't one. Um, deer are, you'll find deer trails coming in and out along every, uh, edge of the boundary of a, of a cut like that they go in and out of it they they bed all throughout it and so um and even once that's replanted in pines and you know it comes up to about waist high pines um and that's a still great bedding cover but it is a solid block of it right um so it it makes it very difficult to predict you know anything around bedding behavior or bedding areas deer have plenty of bedding areas in the south and they don't have to be choosy in most cases so um, yeah, it, it's literally, like you said, I mean, a deer can bed almost anywhere it wants and they do. All right. So, so if I'm going with you and we're going to hang a stand, how are we picking, like, how are we choosing where we should, where we should hang that stand? Cause it's like, you've got the, just say it's that fresh timber cut scenario. That's about a year old. That's just, you know, 
nasty deep with briars, and there's no way you're going to hunt that. And they're get, they're getting in and out of it every which way you can possibly imagine. So there's no way to really say, you know, I know that they're unless you're hanging a trail camera and you have something on a pattern that he's you know he or she is showing up like clockwork at a certain time every day or every two or three days or whatever the case might be. So that notwithstanding, if you were just going in and saying, I need to find a good location to, to, to hang a set, how are you making that decision? Food. Food. It's food. You know, you got to, and, and that's, it's not only food in the early season before the rut, the rut becomes, you know, two things drive buck behaviors, their movements and their home range use throughout the year. And it is, you know, the rut causes the biggest change in their movements and behaviors. But the rest of the time, it's pretty much food and hiding. Um, but so in the in the early season, in archery season, when it's coming in, I'm looking for food. I'm looking for crab apples that might be falling or persimmon tree that's dropping um, or a food plot that I've planted that is, you know, a, a late summer, early fall, you know, cowpea, soybeans or whatever that's still productive that they're coming to. Um, because late summer, early fall is a little bit of a stress period in the South nutritionally because much of the stuff that they've been eating, the green forage and things like that are kind of matured, kind of getting tougher. They're not as digestible. They're not as nutritious anymore. And so things like fruit, like crab apples, like food plots, you know, can become particularly attractive that time of year. So you're keying on food like that in the early season. Where are the deer going to eat? And that, like I said, that comes back to the scouting uh, turkey season is a great time for me to scout because you, crab apples are in bloom. Mm. And you're out turkey hunting and you see blooms. Boom! There's a crab apple tree and you flag and mark that sucker so you can find it in bow season. Right. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, because that will that's you know out of all this surrounding cover, when those crab apples are dropping, that's a great place to be hanging a bow stand because deer are going to be coming to it. Right. Same thing with a persimmon. Uh, same thing with uh, acorns that begin falling early and when the white oaks once they begin falling. But then once you get into the rut, you know, it's 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 rut movements. It's where the buck's going to be. And, of course, they're going to be where the does are. So, mm-hmm. again, you're still following food, right. food plots, acorns, um, or, you know, once rifle season comes in, getting somewhere where you have a good vantage point. You know, right. uh, an open if you do have an open hardwood area, you know, hunting that so that you can see deer when they're going to be moving. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, set up, you know, of course, shooting lanes or will have if they're not hunting over a food plot. For the rut, you might have um, a you know wheel and uh, hub and spoke design type thing where you have cleared strips emanating or out from a deer stand or a shooting tower, and you're up in that, and you, you're surrounded by thick cover, you know, planted pines, cut over, whatever, clear cut, whatever it might be. But there are strips, you know, long 100, 200 yard mowed strips out through there, maybe even planted in something like cereal grains, mm-hmm. and you're monitoring those and watching for deer to step out in them. So. Um, it's about, you know, with a rifle and gun season, getting somewhere where you have a, a can see a long way. Right. So it's, it's interesting because like, as I'm listening to you, I'm just trying to think of, you know, how I kind of hunt, right. And how I would maybe have to change. So it sounds to me like, so whenever you're hunting the early season, like you'd mentioned, like you're definitely on food and that's pretty similar up here. I think that that's, you know, whenever you're hunting early, you want to get on that bed to food pattern, catch them whenever they're coming to feed whether it's they're leaving the food source if you can get a nice cold front in you know october and catch them in the morning if not you're probably kind of um kind of you know i guess narrowed down to hunting evenings to get them coming to the food source but where i think it's a little different is whenever you hit the rut you know whenever you hit the rut it sounds like you're still traveling with food like you're still what is the next best food source that they're going to start to rotate to and i think some of that holds true for the you know midwest and northeast 
But then, at least for me, it becomes more of where are the does betting and where how can I get close to where the does are betting because the bucks are going to have to check those doe betting areas, which is a challenge for the south because, as you would mentioned, betting is kind of everywhere and trying to do pinpoint where they're betting is like finding a needle in a haystack. And right. then I'm also then looking for what are the what are the travel corridors they're going to run that topography has made for me that they're going to have to use to get from betting area to betting area to betting area because I can intercept them in those places as well. Um, and so that sounds like that's one of the biggest difference, differences like strategically is that it, in the south you're really mapping out how the food is changing. And you do that in the north, but it's like there comes a point in a time, I think, in the north and in the midwest where it's like you kind of – you're still paying attention to that, but you're also shifting and now you're focusing on where those does are going to be betting. Do you think it's a fair assessment? Yeah, except that yeah, – you're right. I mean, well, not except that. I mean, I think you just said that or laid it out that that here – we don't have that component of looking at the patterns of bed to feed and, you know, these these corridors that they're using to travel along between point A to point B. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know where they're eating, so you got to try to be there in a way that your wind isn't blowing into the food source. But, yes, it's, it's still difficult to determine which direction. You know, we, were, we know where point A is, the food source, but point B is the, the bedding area is, is the part that's unclear because there are, options in every direction right um and, and just, you just it's it's difficult to predict where the deer are going to be coming from from a bedding area in most cases now i'm not saying that doesn't exist there certainly are properties where um it just happens to set up from the way the ag fields are or you know b- uh, barriers like roadways or mm-hmm. rivers or things like that that can certainly create movement patterns that you can exploit um but in terms of where a deer can bed, it's it's often you know plenty of options in in multiple directions, and it just gets it's a lot more cloudy in most cases to make that prediction about how they will approach along what route and how to position yourself between A and B. Right, and I think the other thing you had mentioned just made me think of if you don't know where they're coming from, it's like I guess talk to me a little bit about how important scent control is in the south because not just the heat so you're probably sweating more than you would sweat whenever you're in the north or the midwest but also if you don't know where they're coming from it's like you have to have your scent you know regimen or whatever it sounds like probably under pretty good control considering that you think you may be playing the wind correctly but the deer you're hunting could very well show up downwind from you just because of where he happened to be he or she happened to to be betting that day that's right. Yeah. And, and there certainly are cases in some stands you can set up and I can think of some on our farm where generally you, you do, you can eliminate some directions and you feel pretty sure at a certain, you know, either morning or evening that deer are not going to be coming from a certain direction. Um, you do have those instances, but it's tougher to eliminate, you know, uh, a whole bunch of different directions and, and know confidently that they're going to be coming from a certain bedding area. Right. So yeah, it's, it's scent control. It's, it's key for any hunter. You know that. Um, But certainly, yeah, many, many times I have, and I'm pretty religious about my scent control, Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of people, you know, down to the point of, you know, cleaning my boots with scent-free soap and and keeping those separate, not wearing those in the vehicle, not wearing those around camp. Um, And yet, still, I mean, you know how it works. Mm -hmm. We can all try our best to be scent-free, but you're not 100% scent-free. And a deer can still smell you, you know, if they're in close enough proximity. Many, many times I've been in a stand and looked over my shoulder and seen a deer cross the path I walked coming in, stop, sniff the path, turn around and go the other way. So, you know, it's it's tough to eliminate directions from which 
uh, deer can come. In many cases, they they can come from any almost any direction. Right. So when we're talking about food plots, you know, because you were you had mentioned, you know, of course, fruit trees are dynamite. I, I've experienced that. I, I never experienced that until this year, where my dad bought a new a new property this year that I just hung cameras on and watched it through cameras this year and didn't hunt it at all. And I didn't spend one day hunting it this year just because I wanted the cameras to do the work and try to figure out what was on the property. And there's some nice deer there. And I want to get a sense of how they're going to move if you just leave them alone, um, which was great. I learned, I learned a lot. Then also through scouting and stuff, I you know learned that there are a handful of, you know, apple trees and pear trees and stuff like that on the property. And man, you are right. Those things are just like a deer magnet. Like I'd never seen it like that before. And I hung a, hung a camera near it and it was just every day, like clockwork in, basically the entire early portion of October and, you know, September, it was just, they were just hammering mm-hmm. that area. Um, so this year you can bet your bottom dollar, there'll be a stand there for the early part of <laughs> early part of October. Um, but in, in terms of food plots, you know, what seems to work well, you know, in South or maybe just specifically Georgia, because, you know, I know you'd mentioned, you know, a cereal, some type of cereal grain you might want to use and some of those strips that you, you cut out for your, for your, um, for your tower or what have you, is there anything that you've found or that you've experienced that has worked better than, you know, better than other things? Yeah. It all depends on, um, what your goal there is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I said earlier in the South, uh, late summer, early fall can be an, in a natural, um, nutrition depression for deer, uh, because forbs and vines and things that they normally browse that are nice and juicy and young in the spring are now old and tougher and, and not as good. They've matured and gone to seed and, and that kind of thing. So, um, a cowpea soybean type mix, um, is, is very good in late summer. Um, but then if your goal is, you know, and that can set you up on some great early season archery opportunities. Um, if your goal is more gun season, you know, October, November attraction. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the cool season annuals, like your cereal grains, mm-hmm. rye, wheat, and oats, um, and maybe, uh, Austrian winter peas, um, things like that, um, which are because they're annuals, you know, you can plant them, they come up quick. They're going to give you attraction this season. Unlike say a perennial clover that you've got to, um, you know, establish in the fall, but that really won't be producing much attraction until spring. And then again, the following fall. Right. Um, and then I like brassicas, rape, kale, uh, turnips, um, which we plant and we, we often mix with, uh, cereal grains like oats, wheat, um, so that they'll be attracted to the oats and wheat, uh, wheat during, uh, fall and hunting season. But then just like brassicas everywhere, um, in the deep South, just like a lot of places, they tend to become more attracted to deer after they've been hit with a really good hard frost, mm-hmm. uh, or freeze. And so, you know, into December and January and February, um, it, the brassicas can fill that winter gap in nutrition. You know, the, the big picture here is, um, and there's an article in the next issue of Quality Whitetails by Dr. Craig Harper about this and, and talking about some of the food plot basics. And, and one of the things he really drives home is, you have to remember this, you carry a deer's nutrition on natural forages and plants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you cannot carry a deer on food plots. Food plots are the icing on the cake or the gap filler for native vegetation. Um, and so in the South, like I say, those gaps are late summer. And winter, and that's so. And then, you know, during hunting season, you're talking about hunting, attracting them for hunting. So, which goal is it? That really kind of determines uh, which crop you plant. And like I just mentioned, there's a lot of good options for those. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it's. I think you mentioned something that was important. It's 
I think it's important no matter if you're setting up food plots or setting up setting up to put on a hunt is determining what your goal is, right? Because without that, you're just kind of you know wandering aimlessly. You know, you have the wrong wrong crop in at the wrong time, or you know, or you're targeting the wrong type of deer that maybe that don't exist in the area that you hunt. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of it's just you know making sure that your goals are aligned with your expect or with your opportunities, you know, realistically. Um, it's, you know, I think that we oftentimes maybe get a little wide eyed with what we're going to accomplish, you know, cause I always kind of use this rule of thumb. It's like, I don't know that I have enough money to feed deer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So as yeah. far as like to create food plots and stuff like that, that are going to really to, to do that, I don't have the, the kind of pocketbook that you need to do that. So I definitely have to rely on, you know, mother nature to, to help with that until your point, you know, just look to see what are some areas at, in times that I can supplement to make sure that yep. there's, they remain healthy and have the things they need during the course of the year. Cause I can help float them for a month or two, but I can't feed them for 12 months. Um, yeah. And, and the good thing about that is the, the, the nice thing about the fact that you deer really need that native forage year round for their basic needs is there are a lot of really easy ways to provide it as a, as a hunter, you don't have to own the land even to do some, some, a lot, some things that really make a difference there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some simple things as far as like, whether it's, you know, I mean, you have to own the land to do this, but you know, hinge cutting and stuff like that, getting more food down at deer, at, at, you know, deer level and things like that. The other thing that I think that we forget about is that these are foraging animals. So it's like, even when you create a food plot, they're really only hitting that destination spot one time a day and they feed, I think five times a day. Right. So it's really hitting it. If it's a destination spot at night, and then they're leaving. So they're really only hitting the buffet one time and the rest of their food they're getting throughout the course of the day by browsing on whatever mm-hmm. is available to them. Um, so I think that we, I sometimes think we give food plots more credit than they deserve in terms of how much of the impact, the overall health of, and sustainability of a herd on, on a property. Um, just by the nature that they, they aren't like us. They don't sit down with a fork and, and a plate and sit down and say, I'm going to eat and this is what I'm going to eat. You know, it's just kind of like, right. this is where I'm at and this is what there is to eat while I'm here. Um, yeah, the thing to remember about that is a deer's digestive system is a lot like ours, but it works best with, with a diversity of different foods. And the deer, you know, I'm not going to say they know that, but they their behavior guides them in a way to satisfy that digestive need. And so they might be walking into the most beautiful clover, high-protein, digestible clover plot you've ever seen. And on the way in, they're going to stop and bite some twig that's, you know, um, that's terrible, terrible in comparison, but their stomach needs a range of different foods in it all year long. And so they know that they're going to eat a different, you know, I've sat on many a food plot and watched a deer, you know, eating briars or even dry leaves on the edge of the food plot before they walked into it to feed in the food plot. They're not ever going to, you know, I like grits, but I'm not going to eat grits all day long. Every day I would die. I would have malnutrition. (laughs) So, um, you know, you've got to have some diversity in deer do too. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like the grits. I think, uh, you know, I don't know if there's anything that I could eat every day, all day. I, I do like, <laughs> some, I do like some grits though. I will say that I could, I could eat some grits. Um, so the one thing I wanted to touch on, man, is, you know, I know the one thing that comes to my mind when I think of the, the South more so than anything, right? We covered a lot of, you know, interesting things that you kind of make the South unique. Um, but to me it's the heat, right? It's just like the, mm-hmm. is the climate. And so, you know, I'm just curious what that does to your hunting, like early season, like I'm, I'm, it's got to be hot. Right. But more specifically, you know, how does that weather or that the heat, you know, impact the rut activity? So, you know, what does the warm weather do to that? Do you, is it 
like what's the timing of the rut in the south and then do the deer act the same way that they would in 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 the north or in the midwest or is it does it happen more under the cover at night because the temps are cooler so how does the rut kind of play out in that in that geographic area yeah it's and it's you know the rut happens no matter what the weather is Mm -hmm. um and it happens the same year about the same time now different areas of the south as i'm sure you probably know some of them are famous for this yeah have have some late and some early rut peaks. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, some of that is natural. Some of it appears to be a result of moving some genetics around during restoration. Yep. Um, and so, you know, like here in Georgia, um, historically, we have uh, an earlier r- rut as you get the, the further south you go. Down into Florida, it's very early. In coastal Georgia, it's in October. So my family's land in southeast Georgia is like a late October rut. And as you get up into middle Georgia, it's more mid-November. Um, and then over in Alabama and Mississippi, you know, they've got a January, even into February late rut. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's all over the calendar, but it's pretty much the same time each year, mm-hmm. uh, for each population. And yeah, the, the weather is not going to change that. Sometimes we feel like as hunters, maybe it's a warm spell and we don't feel like the deer are moving and we didn't see them. And, you know, hunters will often say, boy, I just don't think the rut happened this year. Well, guess what? All the does got bread. Right. Um, <laughs> You're going to have fawns next year. Right. Don't worry. Don't worry. The rut happened. Maybe you didn't see them and didn't get to see the activity you thought you would see, and it didn't feel like the deer were moving, but don't worry. They were taking care of business. It still happened. Yeah. Um, You know, deer are, you know that it's hot down here because you're a human and you can look at the forecast and you can travel around and go, boy, it's hot down here compared to where I'm from. And I can go to other places and go, wow, it's cold. Right. Um, Deer aren't like that. Deer don't know. You know, they live where they live. And they are adapted to live where they live. And a deer in South Florida, you know, has got certain uh, adaptations physically to be fine in that temperature and would not do well if you dropped it in southern Ontario. Right. Um, just like if you brought up a big Borealis whitetail from up there and dropped it in the Everglades, it's not going to do too well. Right. Um, so, you know, they are adapted to the temperature. It's, they don't know it's hot. Um, it's in, they still have to go about business and they have to eat and they have to survive and they have to breed and raise their fawns and just like everywhere else so yeah it's hot and i you know some seasons i run my thermocell all season long to keep the mosquitoes off but (laughs) you know i still see deer i still hunt deer still kill deer and they still breed and we still have a rut um but to your question about you know how does the temperature affect the rut itself and, and affect rut behavior you know that's that's a question that is an interesting one to me because i'll be honest with you the science all the good science that's out there on this question, looking at studies of deer wearing GPS collars, the science says temperature really does not affect deer movement. Right. And yet, as hunters, we all kind of go, but, you know, but, 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 we've all got a story right. of hunting a cold front and yep. feeling like, man, the deer started moving. And before this, when it was hot, they weren't moving. And, you know, I'm the same way. I'm a hunter, too, and I feel the same way. Um and uh, in fact, I was at the deer study group meeting, as I mentioned, in Nashville, Tennessee this week. That is a meeting held annually that's a gathering of deer researchers and biologists from all over the country who come together to share their research. And I'm there to just as a journalist to listen in and pick up new information and learn and talk to these folks. And I even, you know, I asked several of them just casually, you know, what do you think about that? And a lot of them said the same thing. And that was, you know, the data says temperature and weather doesn't affect the movement. Right. But as a hunter, I'm going to cover my ass and I'm going to hunt a cold front. Right. <laughs> they're probably, you know, it feels like it makes them move. So, yep. you know, we, as hunters, we go hunt the cold front. So, um, exactly. It's, it, you know, anyway, 
but it's, it works the same way in the South, just like hunters in the North feel it does in that, um, when, you know, the, the cold front or when the temperature changes, even though the temperature itself might be different here in the South and on a warmer scale, um, we like to be in the woods when it's cooler, just like you guys do. Right. Yeah. No, I, I lived in Florida for a little while, man. I, I was willing to do anything in the cooler weather before I was willing to do it in the hot, in the hot weather, man. It's, uh, <laughs> so that's for, that's, that's for, that's for sure. So I appreciate my, uh, my cool weather and I'll continue to hunt my cold fronts. Um, and I, I totally get you. It's like, I've, I've read those, some of those studies and stuff and I've, I've sat in on a couple seminars and stuff like that. And it's like, and I know what the data says and I'm a data guy. It's like, that's kind of one of the things I like. I like chunks of data. It's part of what I do for, for a living and stuff like that. I was looking at some analytics and studies and reports and stuff like that. And so it's like, I appreciate good data. Um, but there's just something that I'm just like, I know, I know what it says, but I just can't, you know, it's, I, I won't go out and hunt a warm day. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like some days I'll skip it and it might be the best day to hunt, you know, but. Um, well, and see that right there, that right there to me explains what I think a lot of, of these beliefs come from. And that is, I think we are just kind of raised as hunters buying or being, you know, sold the idea that you go when it's cold. Cause that's when the deer is moving. Mm-hmm. So that's when you go. And if you don't go when it's hot, how do you know? How do you know if they moved? Yeah. Right. Exactly. How do you compare? So, you know, I think people really have to stop and ask themselves, are you being completely objective uh, about what you see and and your, you know, your, your, how much you're going when you say deer don't move when it's hot? Are you really out there as much when it's hot as they are when it's cold? Um, Because the data shows they're moving. Now, there might be, there really hasn't been a study that really has dug into this. And there might be subtle differences about maybe where they move right maybe they hold tighter to cover when it's warmer but they're still moving and feeding and breeding right and when it's colder they get out in the open more you know nobody has really addressed that question that could explain why gps collars are still moving around uh when we think they're not right um so yeah i think i think more has got to be done on this question right i think for us to look at it objectively though it's like us us hunters we would have to be uh uh, logical and rational creatures and not superstitious, which those three things combined are challenging for any of us to do <laughs> at the same time. So that's right. Oh man. But Hey, I have one, I have two more questions for you, man. Cause I don't want to eat up all your time here, man. I, we've been you know talking for a little more than an hour. And I want to be sensitive to, you know, what you have going on this evening. So one, I'm just curious, what is the difference in terms of body size and, you know, antler size for a buck? Like, in in the south versus like the the northeast or or the midwest do you do you see there's a disparity is there not really so much of a disparity i'm just i i am i don't have any knowledge on on this particular topic so i'm just kind of looking to get educated here on this so what's the difference yeah no that's a good question and and uh yeah it is true that um certain regions can support deer of a certain size that others can't and we have that range here in the south you know in this in southeast georgia where my family's land is is like I said, it's it's a former ocean floor. It's sandy soils, um, and it's beautiful, and I love it. It's where I'm from, but it just doesn't grow. The soil fertility doesn't grow the volume of forage mm-hmm. that can be grown in other countries or other parts of the country. And so, yeah, average deer body size is smaller, and it goes. You know, our barrier islands on the coast are where some of our smallest deer are, uh, and then the lower coastal plain where my fam- family's land is is you know they're a little bit bigger. And they get bigger as you go up in the middle Georgia and in, in, uh, into over in southwest Georgia where there's a lot more ag. So, you know, we're down in southeast Georgia where, you know, a 160-pound buck on the hoof is a, is a fully mature, really good buck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other parts of the state are growing 
you know, 200 and 220 pound bucks at, at, and bigger at maturity. Right. Uh, antler size follows the same pattern. And, and this is where it is something I have over the years spent a lot of time trying to remind folks about practicing QDM is to tune your expectations to where you stand mm-hmm. and learn to celebrate um, achieving the best you can achieve where you are. If you, you know, go into South Georgia where I grew up, expecting to grow 160s and 70s like they've got in other parts of the state or in Iowa or, you know, uh, anywhere else where those deer are more common, you're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. But if you go into that um, determining, okay, what's a good deer for where we are and and let's produce the best deer we can in this area, this county, you're going to, you'll be successful at it and you can do that and you can achieve that and feel good about it. So, um, but yeah, like for example, where I'm from, Wayne County, Georgia, where my farm is, um, the number one deer uh, in the county, and, and we've got the Georgia Outdoor News Magazine keeps these records of deer that have been officially scored by county, and the number one deer in our county nets 152. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time you get down into number 10 or so, you're down into the uh, teens, the one teens to low 120s. Right now, some other counties in the state. 150 would be the 10th ranked buck or maybe 150 might not even break into the top 10 in the county. So that's where, you know, you have to look at that and you have to say, look, I'm in a county where if we kill a 120 class mature bug, that is a great deer. And, you know, you need to celebrate that. Whereas in another part of the county, you know, a 120 might be a really good two and a half year old or an average three or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in another part of the state. Um, so yeah, it definitely, there's a range there. It, 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 um, not only within Georgia, but throughout the Southeast, Florida has, you know, fairly small deer, particularly as you get down, you know, to the Everglades. And then of course you've got the key deer, which is the smallest deer species of smallest subspecies of whitetail there is. Um, and it, uh, just changes throughout the South with soil types. You've got the black belt in Alabama. That's very productive. You've got the Mississippi Delta area that is, uh, in that soil type that is, extremely productive and you got other areas even with those states that are not as productive you know mississippi and alabama also have a lower coastal plain like georgia does sandy soils that that just like georgia have you know you have to have more realistic expectations about body size and antler size yeah i think i I think you know i know we mentioned goal setting earlier and i think it's just important that you brought it up again is that you know you have to understand what the possibilities are for where for where you live you know i think that that's key the other thing that you you'd mentioned which i thought was really interesting and i just wanted to kind of bring up again was that you mentioned volume of forage based on the soil type that you have and i think that that's important to kind of think about and take away because i i think there's you know i sat in on a qdma seminar with craig daughtry uh, I believe it's Craig, da- Neil Daughtry, actually Craig's his, his father. So Neil yeah. and we were taught and he did a, uh, a seminar on habitat from like soup to nuts pretty much. And like one of the coolest things that I learned during that seminar um, was what you exactly what you just said was that if the volume of forage is the biggest difference between um, growing big deer and not growing big deer. It was mm-hmm. it's essentially how he put it. You know, they did a study. He's like by, by certain, by, I guess by, normal thinking if you will the way people typically think about it if if people say in the midwest they grow better quality forage right and people for the longest time thought it was actually the transfer of nutrients from the soil to the plant the deer ate the plant and was getting more nutrients because that plant had more nutrients was why they were growing better deer so by that logic you should be able to take a deer from the midwest and take him to 
you know, Pennsylvania or Northeast or the South or wherever and vice versa. And the deer that moved South would get smaller. The deer that moved North would, would, would get bigger. And that just didn't hold true. And so they did some further studies. And then they also studied the plants themselves. And they found that the plants in both areas had the same exact nutritional value. What they had determined was that the soils in the Midwest, you know, in some of these places that are known for having great you know, capabilities of growing crops, were actually able to put out more tonnage per, per acre than their counterparts in another state. And so the deer, right. the deer had more access to food just by the, its ability to produce volume per, per acre versus another state. So it's like, yep. it's like say, telling somebody that, you know, we're, we're going to give you nothing but a 1200 calorie diet. And then we're going to give this person over here a 2,500 calorie diet. That's the difference between why one person is larger and the other person is not, <laughs> you yep. know what I mean? It's, it's, and- that's coming from some research by Dr. Craig Harper out of the University of Tennessee that, yeah. that really has looked at that. And then the bottom line is, you know, uh, think about ragweed or any other forb, forb that deer really love to browse. You know, you take a stem of ragweed from South Georgia and compare it to a stem of ragweed from uh, some area with much richer soils. It's the same amount of nutrition. Mm-hmm. It's just that that area with richer soils can grow a bigger ragweed plant and more ragweed mm-hmm. uh, than we can in in sandier soil. So it's yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that should drive your expectations for what you can produce. Uh, but also, you know, again, comes back to the importance of improving that habitat. If mm-hmm. it, I don't care what soils you're on. If you've got uh, shade on the ground everywhere and you're not growing any understory plants, you, you can't hardly go anywhere anyhow. Yeah. Uh, so you need to be, you know, doing some of those practices that put sun on the ground and, and start uh, producing that uh, understory of, d- of diverse plants that deer will use all year long. Yeah. And that was, it was a cool, and he did cite, uh, Dr. Harper now that I'm thinking about, cause that was almost three years ago that I sat in on that, but I just thought it was super, it, it finally made it really, really clear for me. Like I understood now, like what the challenges were, um, mm-hmm. you know, geographically speaking. So with that, man, I will ask you one last question. And this one is, it's an easy one. Softball. You ready? going to knock this one out ready. of the park i'm ready man <laughs> so just give us a uh, a personal hunting story if you wouldn't mind something that's meaning meaningful to you um could be a success could be a failure a near miss you know whatever the case might be but give us every every detail from you know what state you're hunting time of year and uh everything from the time you stepped foot out of the truck and when you got back to the tailgate ah okay well let me uh you know going back to something john said about um about hunters um, sort of treating each other roughly when it comes to looking on other what other people harvest and looking down on them or making them feel bad about that. And it, it, it kind of brings to mind a story that happened to me, and I actually did write about it. It's been a few years back, but it was at our property, our farm in southeast Georgia. And one of the things we found as we practiced QDM there over time, uh, and anybody will find this if they will, you know, if they do QDM and they begin to build uh, numbers of uh, older bucks, if they protect yearlings and just get some more bucks into that two and three and up age class, um, and they are taking the right number of does, so you're kind of bringing the, the sex ratio roughly into balance, what you will find is rattling and grunting works a lot better. Um, and it used to be on our farm that, you know, you could grunt till you were blue in the face and rattle till your hands were bloody, um, and nothing was going to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, there were bucks there. But they're really you, the, the the ratio and the density of adult bucks was such that there really wasn't much rut competition going on. They didn't have any interest in responding to a fight like that. Mm-hmm. But that changed totally through QDM. 
So, you know, rattling and grunting is now a successful uh, technique on the farm, and we do it each year and rattle bucks in. And, this, you know, um, it's been about uh, five or six years ago, I guess I would say. And I was uh, down in the swamp. About half of our farm is um, a floodplain or swamp, as we call it, along Little Satilla Creek. And I was down in the swamp and did some rattling and heard, you know, what you want to hear is some, a deer trotting through the brush right after you rattle and you get excited, you put the, mm-hmm. the rattling antlers down and got my uh, binoculars up, getting ready to kind of see what was going on and hand on my rifle. And out steps this buck and immediately I could see that he was probably not one that I was going to shoot. And he came on in, he was a nice eight pointer, um, but I got the binoculars on him, studied his body and realized that this was probably a two and a half year old buck, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, decent eight point rack, uh, legal buck, but, you know, kind of had the slim body and, and, uh, young musculature of a two and a half year old. I knew he wasn't a yearling. He was a little too good for a yearling in the lower coastal plain, mm-hmm. but, you know, and I put, you know, studying the binoculars didn't, you know, never picked up the gun, enjoyed, uh, actually I'll be honest, that was bow hunting at, at that point. It was during gun season, but I was bow hunting. So I had my bow and I had taken it off the hook and had it in my hand. I was holding my binoculars up with my right hand studying him. So I put my bow back on the hook and just enjoyed watching him and him. And he came in and, um, you know, like they'll do, uh, once they think they've heard something like that, come in, look around, you know, wander around a little bit. And if you don't rattle again and, um, and they don't spot you, you know, he's going to drift on off. And that's what he did. He drifted on off back into the swamp. And the next day, we have a uh, some neighbors of ours there in town. We live right near the town of Scriven, Georgia, and some neighbors of ours um, uh, that we hunt with, and they also practice QDM. They have a, a deer cooler, walk-in cooler, that you know they kind of let the community use. And it's got a nice skinning area that we've set up years ago with a sink and a, and a gambrel and a, and a winch, boat winch, so you can winch your deer up and and a hose so you can clean and jawbone pullers and stuff like that. And then a walk-in cooler to hang your deer if you need to. Um, so the next day I happened to be up there after hunting that morning. And, uh, this was early gun season. We had, it was late October. And so the rut was on and, uh, went up to, I had not done any good that morning, went up to the skinning pole to see what was going on. Cause a lot of people gather up around there with their deer mm-hmm. and, um, Drove up, and there was that two-and-a-half-year-old eight-pointer hanging on the gambrel. And the guy that had shot him was a young guy. I'd say he's probably in his 20s. Um, and a couple of his buddies were there with him. I n- kind of knew who they were, but I had not known, had not met them before. They hunted a, a property that uh, backs up to our farm. So I didn't really know these guys and got out. And, you know, I kind of had the feeling that I think a lot of people would have in that situation was, here's a buck I had passed. Mm-hmm. He didn't meet my particular age criteria, you know, which generally on the farm we're going for three plus. Um, and and I, I knew he wasn't a buck I wanted to, to shoot, so I had to let him go. And yet here he was dead, killed by a neighbor hanging on the skinning pole. And, you know, what do you do in that situation? Right. Do you get angry? Do you, you know, berate the guy for, for shooting a buck you passed? Do you tell him you passed him? You know, do you do you say something smart and snarky like, boy, you'd have been a good one next year? Um, or do you do something a little different? And what I ended up doing was, you know, I went up and, and said, did you get this deer? And he said, yeah. And I said, I said, congratulations. 
And um, we talked a little bit about it. And he told me, uh, you know, where he got him. And I said, are you going to pull a jawbone? And he said, um, no, uh, I don't, you know, it turned out he didn't even know how to pull a tool one. Mm-hmm. And I said, would you mind if I pull a jawbone to see how old he is? And he said, no, go ahead. So I got out the jawbone shears and the jawbone puller and pulled the jawbone out. And of course, exactly what I expected. This deer was two and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and the guy asked me, well, what do you think? And I said, I think he's two and a half. And I, then I started showing him on the jawbone how I knew that looking at the tooth replacement patterns. And then, you know, it clearly was uh, at least a two and a half year old because it had replaced its temporary third molar. And then the wear on the rear molars was not near enough to put him beyond two and a half. So I explained all that to him and these other two guys stepped in and they got real curious and they're, you know, looking and asked me questions about how you age this jawbone. And, you know, it was a good moment. I showed them a little bit about jawbone aging. They thanked me. Um, you know, I did tell the guy that I had seen him the day before, I, you know, and where I'd seen him, I told him, I started rattling him in, you know, I didn't really say, I didn't tell him I passed him. Right. I didn't tell him that, it, that this was a deer I wouldn't have shot. But what I felt like I did was introduce the concept of age to a hunter who'd never really thought about it. Right. It was clear that these guys had never really thought about how old is a deer. They'd never pulled a jawbone, didn't know how to use that technique because it just hadn't occurred to them. This was a legal buck. That was what they were after, and they took it. Right. And my hat's off to anyone who does that. If if you're a legal, ethical hunter, and you're following the rules, and the deer is legal, and he makes you happy, you should take him. Mm-hmm. And that decision should be yours and yours alone, and it shouldn't be made based on what is someone else going to say when they see me with this deer later. Right. It should be about your goals and what makes you happy as a hunter and where you are in your stage as a hunter and your experience and, and your your path that you're walking as a deer hunter. Yeah. And that guy did what was right for him. He took the deer that he wanted. It was legal and he enjoyed that deer. And, and so far be it from me to tell him he'd done the wrong thing. Cause he had not right. for me to have berated him would have been the wrong thing. Right. But instead of that, I, I used it as a teaching opportunity mm-hmm. simply by asking about age, by showing them about the jawbone and, and how they could age that themselves, how they could pull it. They were fascinated watching me take it out. Um, and though I, haven't seen those guys again. I don't think they hunt there anymore. I don't know whether that had any kind of a long-term impact on them. What I can tell you is this, is that, you know, when we first started quality deer management there on the farm, we were the only ones in the area doing it. And the other thing, one of the interesting things about this area is there's still some dog hunting legal in parts of that county. And this is where you chase deer with dogs and try to get out in front of the race and shoot the deer as it comes by. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yeah. But that is a tradition that's still here in some parts of the South, and part of our county is a dog hunting county. And, of course, when you're dog hunting and running deer with dogs, you, you don't age a deer or even look for count antler points or anything else when a buck's running by. If you see antlers, he's legal, you're going to be shooting. Um, so, you know, it's tough to do QDM with dog hunting. So, anyway, this is an area where QDM was a new thing. And when we first started doing it, we were the only ones doing it. And today, when you look at the top ten list of bucks in the county, the – top five or six have all been taken either on our farm or on properties around our farm by people who practice QDM with us. And so my point is it's infectious. Mm -hmm. If you will simply take opportunities like that, small opportunities like that to show people what you do or to teach them something like jawbone aging without pressuring, without, you know, um, getting angry 
or uh, trying to coerce someone or pushing someone to protect an age class of deer that they're not that they're not ready to protect. That's not the way this works. All of us take this thing in a stair-step approach and work our way up to, to stages that we're ready for. My first deer was a yearling buck, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of us. Yep. And I would give you that deer back for nothing in the world. I'd shoot him again over and over and over again. <laughs> exactly. uh, so all of us should have the opportunity to work our way up. And if your neighbor has never taken a buck or has never taken a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, give them that chance. You don't go to them and say, hey, I want you to stop shooting everything but five-and-a-half-year-olds. Just because you're at that level doesn't mean they need to be. And that's something I think people have got to understand about QDM is be patient with it. You don't force it on people, but you lead by example. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what we have done. That's what I was trying to do when I showed that guy how to age his buck. Um, You know, no, there was no pressure. There was no ill will. I didn't tell him he'd done anything wrong because he hadn't. And, um, and And that's what we've done. Now, whether in that case, like I said, it worked with that person, I don't know. But I can tell you that in the neighborhood, Leading by example has worked, right. and um, folks in that area now protect yearling bucks. And again, that's the other one of the other misunderstanding is if you can just get folks to protect most of the yearling bucks out there, even if you know their kid takes one or a few kids take one or a few adults take one every now and then, if most of the yearling bucks are making it to two, that's really all you have to do to start building numbers of age uh, of older bucks. Yeah, it's not about letting them all go until they're five and a half. Right. Uh, that really is pretty difficult in a rare situation for most people because five and a half year old bucks are not numerous, you know, in anywhere. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the story I think about a lot and, and try to share with people as an example of, you know, not because I'm not holding myself up here for praise because I'll be honest with you, when I first stepped out of the truck and saw that buck swinging there, yeah, my first reaction was to be upset, yep. to be a little frustrated, to be angry. Here's a deer I'd let go and now he's dead. Yeah. And I think anyone's, you know, anyone's reaction to that situation initially might be to be a little hot under the collar. Mm-hmm. But I think if you just stop, keep that to yourself and think about ways you can turn that those situations into a positive connection with a neighbor or a hunting friend or whatever that might be. After all, y'all, this is hunting. Yeah. It's supposed to be fun. Yep. We're all supposed to be having fun, you know, uh, and, and if we all have fun together and lead by example, this stuff works a lot better. Yeah, no, that's a great story, man. I think... Yeah, it's it's one of those things if somebody doesn't know how are they supposed to know unless they're unless they're educated it it takes someone just taking the time to to explain things to them you know what i mean because most people are open to if you ask hunters right do you want to shoot do you want to hunt big deer i don't think you would get an argument from any one of them (laughs) you know what i mean and so then the next step is you know do you understand how to how to get to that right if, if they're interested, right? And then explaining to them, just as you did, what are some things you can look for to help you understand like what type of deer you are, are looking at, whether you're aging on the hoof or whether you're pulling the jawbone later or whatever the case might be. But it just takes having that conversation to just drop a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of education, and let them kind of then then take it, you know what I mean, and do what they're going to do with it. I know on our family farm, we had something that was similar. You know, we don't, we don't have quite the cooperative, uh, you know, the co-op around us. Um, like you're talking about, but you know, we have, it's roughly 240 acres and the one farm is, and you know, over the course of time, I've kind of, as I've kind of done some habitat management on it and stuff like that with, you know, my, my father-in-law's, you know, blessing and help, um, we've slowly, but surely, you know, through me passing deer and, and him learning to start to pass deer, all the other guys that hunt the property started passing some deer that they typically would have shot in years past, you know? 
And this was right. the first year since we've really started doing our our management stuff that the bucks that we were seeing, or the deer, I shouldn't say the bucks because a lot of times you have displacement, of course, but this was the, the year where the deer who had grown up on the property would have had the habitat improvements that we've made since the time they were fawns or since the times they're, they were born and were, and were weaned and, and grew up on the farm. They've had these habitat improvements. And I don't think it's any mystery why this year was the, the, the year that we finally saw probably some of the best bucks that we had, had seen because we've spent the past several years passing deer. Um, we've spent a lot more time watching what we have on the property so we can identify and understand who is there. And we spent the past couple of years making some, albeit small, but I think meaningful habitat updates that have helped us. Um, and so it was, it wasn't, you know, I didn't go in with fire and brimstone. I went in with, you know, if this is all, if we can all agree, these are some things we would like to achieve or do or have the opportunity to do, you know, there are some ways to get us there and, and let me share with you how to do that. And so then, you know, I had a little resistance from my father-in-law. So what I ended up doing was one year for Christmas was I got him a QDMA membership. So he'd start getting the magazine because he wasn't believe he's an old, he's an old, you know, love him to death, but he's an old Pennsylvania farmer type, you know what I mean? And there's a yeah. certain type of approach, you know, he's just an older generation. And so he wouldn't necessarily take what I was saying at face value, you know, like I, either I didn't know what I was talking about or, um, or I was making it up or whatever the case was, I, for whatever reason, he wasn't buying everything that I was selling. Um, until I started getting him that, I got him that membership and he started getting that magazine. And it was just like probably a year and a half ago, he came up to me the one day and said, you know what I read in that magazine? I read this, this, and this. He's like, you were right. And I was like, I I just said to him, I was like, could you repeat that again? (laughs) You know what I mean? So it just, it it took a little longer than maybe I would have hoped, Um, you know, but he came around and I did nothing but just get him a membership and said, if you're not going to believe, if, if I can't convince you or, or if you don't want to, you know, take in the information that I'm willing to share with you, then here, let me give you a resource, you know, cause he loves to read and he loves to read about hunting. So it was the perfect, it was the perfect thing to get him. Um, yeah, and now, great. and now he reads the magazine cover to cover and he thinks <laughs> it's like one of the coolest things and I'm going to have an article in it. And so then same thing when my dad bought this property. The first thing I did as soon as he bought the property, it was like he bought it and then father's, his birthday came up and then I bought him a membership for his birthday too. And I was like, here are a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's my end, man. You guys have been helping me in more ways and more ways than you know, but Hey man, I want to be sensitive to your time. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate the conversation. I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm a little bit more in tune with, with the South. I got my, my Southern juices flowing a little bit. Um, I definitely think your accent even changed. A it bit might, it might have, you, I get, I get accused of having a Southern accent in Pennsylvania. I, I definitely do. It's kind of funny, but I grew me, up let in, you, let me hear you say y'all y'all. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So I got work on doing good. <laughs> I, I grew up in South central Pennsylvania, which is, you know, it probably has a lot more in common with the South than it does the rest of the state of Pennsylvania, um, or the North for that matter. Um, so it's, it's very much close to the Mason Dixon line. So there's definitely some Southern influence where I, where I grew up, but Hey man, thanks for coming on. Um, you know, always look forward to talking to you and, uh, can't wait to get in touch with you again soon. Yeah, Clint, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, it is a wrap for today's show. We'd just like to thank Lindsay for joining us and be sure to check out quality deer management association.com. A really great resource for any deer hunter. Uh, doesn't matter if you're looking for habitat information, if you're looking for, 
info related to what's going on with deer across the country in terms of deer herd and, and, and deer herd management and so forth, or any type of policy changes that might be upcoming or important things that you need to know as a hunter, you will find all that information there. Also, if you're not a member of QDMA yet, I highly recommend that you um, go ahead and pick yourself up a mem- uh, membership. It's not all that expensive. It's like 35 bucks, I think, is the lowest tier to get in. You get some uh, cool products along with it, and, uh, uh, and not least of all, you get a subscription to the Quality Whitetails magazine, which is absolutely my favorite Whitetail magazine. I read, it's probably the only magazine that I read cover to cover whenever it lands in my mailbox. Also, I want to be sure to give a big thanks to all you that continue to listen to the podcast. You know, want to make sure that I pass along John and I's gratitude. Um, of course, without you guys, we wouldn't have a show. Uh, so we're very appreciative that you choose to spend an hour plus you know every week with uh john and i and you know usually a guest talking deer hunting so very much appreciative of that and if you could head over to itunes and leave us off leave us man words are hard today leave us a five star rating on itunes and then subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so to make sure it shows up on whatever mobile device you choose to use to listen to your podcasts And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.